Welcome to Ponzi Scream. Uh, this week we have a special guest. Uh, her name is Alyssa Katz. She is the deputy editor of The City. Uh, she is also a longtime investigative journalist covering consumer lending. Uh, she has uh, a couple books that, that came out that uh, we can get into a little bit later. Uh, one of them is called Our Lot, How Real Estate Came to Own Us. And the other one is The Influence Machine, The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and The Corporate Capture of American Life. Uh, Alyssa, how are you doing? I'm very good. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, uh, a pretty good morning. Uh, so we read your uh, story in The Intercept. Fascinating piece. Really, 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 really well done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this is, um, you know, I had a couple of years ago really started noticing um, ads on the internet, on TV, um, for these online lenders, company like companies like SoFi and Best Egg, that were pushing loans um, as a as a way to for consumers who were already in debt to improve their standing. So whether that was student loan uh, burdens or uh, you know, credit card balances, other kinds of economic burdens, the proposition was well get one of our loans and you can refinance and get a lower interest rate. And whenever I see any kind of promotion to consumers suggesting some kind of advantage in borrowing, I always want to know what the angle is. So I started looking into <laughs> yeah. this industry and, um, and yeah, and, and you know, as, as you mentioned, I had written a book um, that came out in 2009 called Our Lot, How Real Estate Came to Own Us in you know, in doing that book, I had a, a really front row seat to a lot of these communities where predatory lending and and not just like predatory lending as in high interest rates, but also um, lending that tried to take advantage of consumers in different ways. So home equity, extraction, um, different, you know, products that, you know, as, as, as we, we know from the sordid history of the real estate bubble in the 2000s, like products yeah. that really extracted um, this sort of paper value of people's homes um, and left them with really big debt burdens when the value uh, turned out to have been false and fraudulent, right? So, um, you know, I, I always I always come to consumer lending with that lens of thinking, what's the angle? What's the sort of um, uh, uh, story behind how they are convincing not only consumers to uh, use these products and take out these loans, uh, in this case at high interest rates, but also um, what is it that is powering the business side of this? Because yeah, what's, behind what's the that, uh, the, right. So the, um, you know, in this case, it turned out that in fact, the business model was very, very similar in some ways and very different than others from the prime lending and um, uh, sort of highly leveraged lending of 2000s in that mm -hmm. this new online lending industry realization and investors and on creating uh, financial products that promise pretty high returns to those investors, even though when you start looking at the products, a fairly high share of those consumers actually can't keep up with their debts. 
Um, but the loans are structured in such a way where that doesn't matter. And and that once I kind of had that insight, oh, this seems to look at the awesome. Analysts, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's cool. awesome. Yeah. I have to say, you know, and this is. It, <laughs> well, you know, it's, you know, the way the industry is able to justify its existence is to say, well, we are making loans available to consumers that would not otherwise be available to them. And, you know, for that portion of borrowers where they got in over their heads with debt, they want to refinance, um, they have good enough credit to get a relatively low interest rate, and they're very disciplined about making their payment, it actually can be a good product. Um, the issue is that the industry makes its money on volume and it sort right. of is, is, and this is very similar to what happened in the real estate bubble. If you're chasing after volume, um, it means that the underwriting, right? The sort of profile of the consumer you're lending to, there's going to be a lot of pressure to let that deteriorate. Um, and, and the industry continues to spin it as, well, yeah, we're going after consumers with lower credit scores who are more debt burdened, but that's okay. We're helping them. They wouldn't get this credit if it were not for us coming in to help them. Um, the issue is, as we, you know, when we enter a period of economic adversity, as we're in right now, um, all that potentially falls apart. And you know, this industry has been kept afloat for the time being because it is uh, has temporarily um, extended, like either deferred, allowed consumers to defer payments or enter mm -hmm. payment plans. Uh, of course, we've had various forms of government relief so far, but that could all collapse very quickly. And so, um, you know, this is the first time that this industry has really been tested in the way that it, it has been. And we, we will see if it's just going to remain a small fraction of consumers relatively who default, or if it's going to become a kind of mass failure uh, situation. Will it stay resilient? Huh. So resilient. that's just a buzzword I like. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. I, I, I have to say, actually, um, you know, reading this was uh, a, a somewhat emotional endeavor for me because I started reading the article and I uh, I used to do some work in the tech industry and uh, I started reading it. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. This sounds like Prosper. And uh, I, I kept reading. I was like, oh, no, this is definitely Prosper. And then I looked down and I was like, oh, no, I, I have Prosper. And for people <laughs> who don't know, Prosper is literally one of, one of these products. It's, you know, these, one of these online lenders. And it was, uh, you know, uh, I, I really do, like, thinking about it critically, I look at it and this app and I can see kind of what you're talking about, like some of the financialization in it. Is, is sort of hidden because you know I'm not even a um, a lender, a person who's getting money. I'm like one of the people who's like, oh yeah, like uh, uh, I'll I'll be one of the like e investees or whatever in it, uh, or like uh, you can invest in this person's uh, refinancing of like their credit uh, card. Or, oh, so like, you're so you are one of yeah. This is you're raising an important point, Danny. Um, so you're mm -hmm. saying, in other words, you were part because this industry got its start. Right? right, as kind of this crowdfunding phenomenon, right, and it kind yes. of, um, right, it was sort of, it, it started much in the way actually the Airbnb started as like, oh, you have a couch, you can make friends around the world and monetize your your, your living space, you know, it's, um, when, when did it get really did start out as, you know, I, I'm not, I, I want, I, I'm not positive about the exact sort of point in time where we, we could say it was created, because I didn't look at the early history. 
but right. um, and, and maybe Danny, you know better than I do as an investor in um, in, in Prosper. But basically, you know, crowdfunding. I think it was in the late two uh, thousands as mm-hmm. uh, the uh, internet power kind of grew and enabled kind of financial right. trades, and there was you know you you really um, you had a bunch of firms, but notably um, Prosper and some and uh, Lending Club, right? It's in the name Lending Club that you you mm-hmm. could have micro investors making micro profits, and and it was called peer to peer lending. That was the buzzword. So um, right. with peer to peer lending. You know these. You know they couldn't really scale peer-to-peer lending. Was my sense, although again I didn't look deeply at that that piece of the history. But Prosper remains. If you look at their SEC filings, they continue. And it sounds like Danny, you may remain like an investor. They continue to um, have part of their portfolio go to these micro investors. But by but at this stage, by far the biggest share of it is these kind of institutional investors um, that are uh, you know investing in these securities just as they invested in mortgage-backed securities or other kinds of asset-backed securities. So it was really only scalable with that kind of infusion of, of capital. See, I, I had no idea that like, <laughs> I had no idea that was hap- happening in the background. Cause I, I mean, I think uh, a, a couple years ago I had a more like higher paying job and I literally was just talking to another friend and was just sort of like, Oh, what's a goofy way I can, you know, make a hundred dollars in a year you know like one of those kind of like <laughs> yeah why not right <laughs> situations and you go onto their their website and it definitely has sort of a sort of relatively sleek um you know tech you know speak kind of uh vibe to it minimalism you know, it def- is oppressive man yeah it's oppressive. It, it looks like it looks like a squarespace website you know that kind of situation and it uh it definitely gives the the sort of vibe like you know like again like we're 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 innovating our way out of the the problem um but then it's funny because you go into the actual investment part of it and they're like hey do you want to invest in this person who we've deemed a like double a plus rating uh situation for them to uh do a home improvement thing or do you want to invest in this person's like C graded sort of like, you know, they're consolidating their debt situation. And it is somewhat opaque because if you just look at it from a sort of uh, consumer standpoint, you're like, oh, well, the interest rate on the A is like 7%. So I, hypothetically, I'd make $7 over a year. But the interest rate on this D rating is 25%. And you're like, oh, well, I want to make all the money that I can make off of this. So I'm just going to get a bunch of C and D rating things right. and not and not think about it and just sort of be like, uh, be like, oh, and then there's like even a category called HR, which I think is uh, yep. even more nebulous where it's like, oh, it's uh, this Human one resources. is a 30 percent. This, yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> this one's a 30 percent rating. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but OK, I guess it makes more money and uh you just sort of let it kind of chug along on the background meanwhile you, you're, you're not you're like wait a minute like did i just make a huge mistake like oh man like, yeah is this bad <laughs> danny this sounds like uh we're going to the belmont uh racetrack and i got my book with all my horses in it and yeah, i'm gonna invest yeah. in the long shots the every time Yes. Is that yes. was that is that the setup for how Prosper would let you invest 
in people and kind of bank hope against the odds that they didn't go underwater. Kind of, yeah. That it definitely it definitely has that uh that vibe to it. And uh <laughs> oh, that's funny. But but I will say there's a difference. It's funny that you're mentioning the you know, the horse racing analogy because in horse racing nobody pretends that anybody but the house wins when your horse loses. I right. Think, right. And you guys might know more mm -hmm. than about horse racing than I do. Um <laughs> but the uh but in this case, you know, it's it's um you know, you have these investment pools where the, um, you know, the you have investors who are also continuing to make their their money. Maybe not in a peer to peer example where you have the one to one relationship, but once you are pooling those investments, you know, not only is the issuer of this loan always getting paid, we have this is just where I'm based. We have on interest, and right. if any loan product charges any more than that, it's it's criminal. You can be criminally prosecuted. So you know the yeah. lenders know right. they can't do that, and they don't make those loan products in New York. But it just gives you an idea. You know, it's sort of it's very normal in the in the online lending industry to have interest rates, even for the mainstream products that can go upwards of thirty percent. And then, of course, and I didn't focus on right. this as much because it's been covered elsewhere, um, but certainly you have the kind of payday lending businesses, which are charging interest that's effectively in you know, the three digits, uh, 100%, 200%. And they're doing that because they're doing short-term lending on small amounts. So to the consumer, it seems like, oh, that's not that much. But it's actually, you're paying double or triple in what you borrowed in interest. And um, that's obviously not uh, healthy or, or sustainable. Alyssa, I think about uh, payday loans remind me. I'm from Kansas City, which is uh, like a few other Midwestern towns, kind of hotbeds of payday loans. Uh, the the industry is very hot there. When I when I think of, when I read the story, right. I was reminded uh, uh, by analogy of payday loans is to you know these fintech uh, you know debt trap companies, and uh, as Walmart is to Amazon. In, the, hmm. in in a way that this is kind of the the payday loans was the Walmart, uh, you know, business model. Uh, you know, you had to go in uh, to the to the actual store uh, to get the loan and things like that. And now this is just kind of an automated or digital version thereof. But ultimately, it's kind of the same business model. Does does that ring true to you? Um, I think it, it rings true to me in the sense, in a, in a couple ways. One is certainly the mainstreaming of what it was, you know, payday lending, I think is very much upon us because by their nature, what are called unsecured loans, right? It's not a loan on your house. It's not a loan on your car. It's basically, it's a loan right. that is based on your ability to repay. Those are always going to be higher interest rates because, you know, if, if you default, there's no one to, to go after. So the, the very fact that unsecured lending, and, and it's been around for a long time with firms like household finance and so on that were not payday right. lenders, they were just high interest lenders. But it's, it's sort of the, part of this industry's goal and certainly with the companies that aim at refinancing student debt like SoFi um, are really focused on kind of yeah, normalizing these kinds of transactions, which are, you know, can be pretty pretty lucrative. And it's, it's about creating a market outside of traditional banking, although very much relying on licensed banks to kind of power the engine. And we should, we should talk about that because it's, it's a very interesting yeah. kind of game of how to, how to dodge regulations through. Exactly. I guess I, I'm interested in hearing about uh, how this is different from a traditional bank 
And then uh, also, I was just just a question. Uh, do people who are involved in this industry um, self-identify as predatory lenders? <laughs> well, interesting, <laughs> interesting question. I, I'd say to, to answer your second one, for the most part, no, but the industry is starting to have some awareness that um, their interest rates in lending practices are subject to being called predatory lending and asking them to kind of own and reckon with that. So I'll, I'll uh, and you know, and that came up very um, just recently in a report, you know, there are these bond rating firms, much as the firms rated mortgage-backed securities and overvalued them before they collapsed, you now have right. uh, ratings coming out for these lending products. And the, um, you know, there's a firm called Kroll Bond Rating Agency and Kroll um, is trying to become kind of the fourth big agency kind of after Moody's and Standard and & Poor's and Fitch. And so, mm. you know, they have really gone all in on this industry. And for the first time just last month, when they looked at a, an offering from Best Egg, which is one of these companies I, I write about, um, they said they had a warning um, in there, in their report. And they said, you know, investors should be aware that um, while some would say that these loans are making credit available to people who otherwise wouldn't get it, it can be subject to being uh, attacked as predatory lending. And there's a real kind of social and political risk that you would have some liability as an investor based on that. And that was amazing to me to see that coming from a ratings firm whose job it is to try to, uh, you know, get these companies to have them rate their, their bonds. Um, but they needed to say it because it is a real, and it was before my article came out, but it was a real liability as these regulatory battles are going on. You had another question though, Gabriel, what was your main question? I, I mean, I'm on a tangent now with this because this is interest. This is around how do they, how do they, uh, sort of whitewash that term predatory lending? Um, and, and in your article, you kind of brought up that they, that there's this, um, argument that they are. Uh, helping underserved communities. Yeah. Huh. Right. Yeah. Like. Right. So. So the their own rhetoric that they use sounds so in there sounds so inclusive. But it's saying, well, payday, we're payday lenders use the same uh, use the same sort of justification, right? I mean, because these are unbanked communities, oftentimes. Oh, I know. I know what your question was. The, the you asked about the role of banks uh, in these transactions, and it's really crucial because. You have to be chartered by some government uh, authority that has the power to charter banks. Yeah. And you can be chartered by a federal, by um, state regulators. Now, that actually started under President Obama and kind of has redoubled now under Trump's uh, Office of Controller of the Currency, which, by the way, is uh, currently being run by an acting a uh, controller who was a board member of one of these online lenders called oh, Avant. Great. Um, and awesome. that <laughs> tight. <laughs> so so the the um you know they have attempted and got beat back in the courts uh, to create a special charter just for online lending. And that charter would just basically steamroller over state lending laws such as this 25% interest cap in New York that I mentioned, and some other states have similar interest rate caps. Mm -hmm. So um, this got beaten down by the courts basically saying that the, um, on, that, that the, um, the National Bank Act, which kind of uh, empowers federal banking chartering in the first place, just basically didn't allow for 
the OCC to simply say, okay, now we have, we, we're chartering online banks. That would actually have to be something Congress would do. Right. But in the meantime, the way the industry works, and bear with me because it's a little complicated, but I'll try to keep it simple, is that sure. these, these online lending platforms are not in fact banks themselves. They're just tech companies, kind of like what you were talking about, Danny. Like they're just an app, they're a bunch of coders, you know, they, they um, are creating a user interface and a user a consumer product. Um, they have to, to make these loans team up with banks. And there exists a loophole in banking laws that dates back to the 1980s when interest rates were really high and Congress was trying to do something to kind of uh, help consumers find better rates. Um, and they allow any, a bank in any state to lend in another state at the interest rate that would be allowed in their home state. And it's called exportation. So all these online lending companies, basically they pick a bank, many of them are in Utah, where there is no cap on interest wow. rates. There's another company. Utah has no yeah, cap? none at all. No cap. On, no cap on a certain kind of charter called an industrial charter. And so these industrial charter banks have basically been renting out their license to these fintech companies. And it's a big oh, business. A, and I think Lending Club does that. Ooh. Yeah, and Avant does that. Basically, any of the lenders that want to lend above 30% are doing it based out, a lot of them are doing it based out of Utah. Um, the Delaware, then, the Delaware of, uh, banking. Yes. Yeah. It, you got to have a, a PO box in the, in the beehive state and you can, uh, lend it 45% <laughs> interest rates, 125% interest rates. Yeah. But the, um, but what's happened is that, um, the, um, the industry has not been satisfied with just simply having that power because courts have blown the whistle on doing that shell game when it violates state interest rates because it's it's again this gets in the weeds but you know the investors don't hold on to these loans forever once that the once a borrower cannot repay the investors will sell off the loans to a collection agency where they come by with it's not exactly baseball bats and kneecaps or anything but they use the usual aggressive methods of debt collecting um, and those, what courts, federal courts have ruled in, and this affected New York, um, New York, Connecticut, and Vermont, but potentially could influence courts elsewhere. And this also happened in, in Colorado as well, where they said, actually, those collection firms, they're not part of that interest rate shell game. They're not allowed to collect at that illegal interest rate. Um, so forget about making these high interest loans in New York, Connecticut, or Vermont. Um, so the industry was kind of, um, how, sorry, like, they were very concerned that more courts. Yeah. Yeah. How do you enforce that? If it's a tech company, like if I am in Manhattan, I can't get this loan, but if I take my cell phone over to Hoboken, I can, or sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't, and I don't know New Jersey's interest rate caps, but yes, it has to do with the residence of the borrower, I believe, I don't know, or it could be where they're taking out the loan, but I think it's where they live. Um, and it's okay, basically, okay. you can't, you know, engage in this transaction in this, in this particular, but you know, it's, if you're doing this transaction in the state, even if it's online, just like you can't do, you know, online sports betting in New York, but you can go to New Jersey and do it. It's the same, it's the same principle. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. so, yeah. um, yeah. it, so, so I think that, um, it, it, you know, what's, what's happened is the industry has been pushing for a few years now. They pushed in Congress and now they're trying to do this. Um, through the regulatory agencies because they didn't do it in Congress is to 
um, change the law so that these debt collectors actually can swoop in whatever the state is and that it resolves this question that the, basically the courts blew the whistle and they're based, they're trying to now bigfoot the courts and say, no, actually these lenders and their collection agencies can lend at whatever rate they want in any state they want um, from the beginning of the transaction all the way to collecting the few pennies you have left when, you, when your loan is failed. So um, wow. that's the fight right now. Um, and it's, um, so what's happened is the controller of the currency and the FDIC controller is, feder is federally chartered institutions, FDIC is state chartered institutions, are basically saying, hey, it's cool by us if you want to collect on loans in any state, regardless of their interest rate. Um, and this is a huge, huge um, risk to consumers because it could mean, and, and certainly New York's regulators and lawmakers and our state attorney general have been very vocal about this. It basically will, will mean the effectively the end of New York's usury limits, right? The 25% interest rate cap is, wow. is meaningless because any bank could come in under this proposed rule um, and lend at whatever rate it wants and collect at whatever rate it wants. So it's really a big risk and um, I'm sure it will undergo legal challenge, um, but that's the state of play right now. So it's a very tenuous time for consumers getting back to your, your Walmart versus Amazon analogy because you know, you're just having the potential for people who are you know, maybe in dire economic straits to just borrow at at high interest rates and um, you know not be able to repay and have you know damage to their credit, go into bankruptcy, um, you know pretty serious consequences that are kind of a result of their desperation. You 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 dovetailed into it like kind of perfectly. Um, one of the one of those stories about the the guy who had his Ohio Cleveland based uh, restaurant situation, you know that like wasn't doing so well uh it financially and uh eventually you know it uh, you know did eventually go under and i think that was that is sort of what like in your story what kind of gave me a little bit of pause because with the housing crisis i think i think you know media tried to convey you know like in, in um especially like in movies like the big short and what have you that like part of it was sort of like uh Oh no! This is like a consumer's messing up situation. Like they thought they could have, uh, afford a house, and they were financially irresponsible, and blah blah blah. You know, and like, and I, you know, as time has gone on, we've sort of, you know, come to learn it's a sort of like no, this is sort of kind of being pushed on people, and like, and and what have you. This feels a little different because, especially in that Ohio Cleveland based story, it it, it almost feels like a person like trying to save like a dying animal almost like it's it's there's a lot more desperation that's sort of attached to sort of that quick money it's not like you're it's not like you're investing in your future kind of like how you would with like a uh, property or a house or something like even if it's sort of a risky thing people kind of inherently understand like okay maybe i can make this work you know etc cetera, etc cetera. but this just seems like it like kind of like at least how I think it's being stated, like a, a more desperate situation. And, and, and that's what makes it feel a little bit more dire, you know? Yeah, no, I think you've detected something really important. Although I also want to just sort of slightly uh, uh, adjust the history here in the real estate bubble, which is 
we have to remember that by far the largest amount of dollars that kind of went into the giant pile of debt in the in the 2000s was cash out refinancing. In other words, these mortgage brokers and firms really um, incentivized to, they were really pushing very aggressively, please, please, please refinance, you know, because they get paid every time that happens and the consumer is like, oh, I get free money, my house is worth how much? So you, you had, it yeah, wasn't desperation yeah. because there was sort of a giddiness of like people thought, oh my goodness, I'm rich. I had all this home equity. This guy's going to help me or this girl's going to help me uh, pull it out of there. And um, this is great. This is great. Where, you know, so it was sort of a giddy uh, high and people got really intoxicated on a lie. Um, in this case, you're absolutely right. It is um, a kind of desperation. And one thing that, that became clear to me in some of the reporting it was not material I could use because understandably people are sensitive about this, but gambling appears to be really tightly associated with going into this kind of debt. Um, there was at least one person whose um, who's, who's, uh, uh, contacts I, I talked with, it was very clearly about um, a gambling situation. Um, and then I got no, just you know, DMs. <laughs> course, yeah. Well, I also got DMs on on Twitter from people who were recovered gamblers who said, "I'm so glad you wrote about this, and you really should look into the nexus of this kind of lending and gambling." So um, I, I think that that's, I mean, that is wow. that is a story that's yet to be told, but I think it's a very very important one, especially as online gambling has blossomed and people are staying home more. Um, you know, people just need to keep feeding their, their gambling addictions. Um, the other really interesting piece of, I, I came, up, came across a very interesting piece of research um, that, that came out of um, Harvard Business School, which I quote in the piece very briefly, but there's a lot more to it about um, the people who take out these online loans it, it overall being worse off financially, more indebted than they were to begin with. That same research Jesus. also found that yeah, it just sort of in the aggregate, kind of giving the lie to the idea that it's uh, you know a net a net plus for consumers, but then but moreover they also found they they, they referenced I think some other studies that found that impulse control was a real issue for borrowers because it's just so easy to to dive in and and click and then you're in with this loan and you get that oh yeah influx of cash, uh, and that this was a real issue kind of driving consumer behavior in this. Um, so, so, yeah. so you talk about that. You talk about the grimness of it all. Part of the grimness is that you know there's sort of it's all about sort of desperation and impulse and exploiting that desperation and impulse. I think that's what you you picked up on. Uh, Alyssa, something that uh, I got from the article was that it's not only about the companies that loan the initial debt, but then that there is sort of uh, tiers of people of other companies that buy that debt. Yes. Uh, looking to get um, a percentage of it back. So it's not really, no one's actually uh, planning to get all of the debt. They're, they're selling that debt off. And then when a, a consumer goes to try to talk about, uh, to the initial institution that they lent, that they borrowed from, that, uh, that company doesn't really yeah. have uh, a storefront or a desk or anybody for them to talk to. That's right. Yeah. And, and it is true of a lot. I, you know, some of the brand name companies are representing themselves as as being available. But look, when when the best egg. Right. <laughs> well, best eggs are good. Sounds again. like a great brunch restaurant. 
right? but anyway. <laughs> right. So the um, what's really interesting about Best Egg, I was just going to bring up that example. And, you know, they work with a partner called Cross River Bank based in New Jersey. And Cross River is also one of the biggest lenders for uh, PPP loans right now. And, and basically, cool. they've marketed themselves very heavily <laughs> as like a rent-a-bank for online lenders um, to, to use in, in, in any oh, good. country. <laughs> um, but Best Egg, what's so interesting is that, and they did not answer me on this question, when, when they just settled with the attorney general in Colorado after a judge said that, uh, you know, basically they were breaking Colorado law by charging excessive interest and fees, um, they agreed to have a kind of consumer complaint process that was involving both Best Egg I don't know if it involved both Best Egg and the bank, but they had a, they were they agreed to have a consumer complaint process where they had to wow go have a, a place for consumers to go. They had to have a process to resolve consumer complaints, um, which suggests that one did not exist before. And when wow. I asked when I asked Best Egg um, and and Cross River, would you uh, consider? Could you commit to having a consumer complaint process or point of contact in any other state in the country. And of course they didn't respond. So um, this is a big issue. You, know, we, uh, you talk to bankruptcy lawyers, they have a horrible problem with this because their clients are trying to settle their debts and, and, and reduce them. And they literally have no one to talk to. So um, it's a big issue. It's a concern for New York's uh, banking regulators when they sued um, to try to um, stop the FinTech charter. They're just very concerned that they have no way to regulate the companies, uh, no way to make sure that consumers have anyone to go to. So it's a big structural issue in this industry. I wanted to ask a little bit more about the relationship with institutional banks. Uh, there's a few that are mentioned in the article, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, the Soros Fund, uh, and a few others. Can you, can you uh, elucidate a little bit the relationship that these big investors have or is it yeah yeah sure and and i should say since i um sort of at the last minute i didn't put it into the article but i you know got um some details about other investors and these securities you know it's like jp morgan chase prudential blackrock mass mutual so these are sort of major wow. brand name institutional oh boy investors <laughs> in that or in and that these industry. people and these people manage like your 401k and stuff as well. So, I mean, this can get really, this can get tied into other people's money. Too. Yes. I, and I don't know based on the limited information that comes from a Bloomberg terminal, kind of what these portfolios are, are these basically private equity portfolios. Um, are they in fact um, mutual funds or something like that? But actually in, in the right, case right. of, I think it's his best egg. I have a, somebody sent this to me. Let's see. I'm looking at it right now. What is this? Oh yeah. This is best egg. Uh, in the case of Best Egg, by far the biggest holder with about 19% of the shares uh, in this particular 2019 pool is Allianz SE. Um, and there's another from Double Line Capital LP. So that suggests that it's private equity. Um, BlackRock certainly yeah. is private equity. So, so you know, you basically have, um, you know, these investors finding that they, these, these products provide high returns to them. And they, or at least did until now. Um, you also, I did, you know, um, in, interact with the folks at uh, Soros Fund Management, who, as you saw in the story, said basically, yeah, we used to um, be heavily in these uh, pools, and we used to, you know, they, they, you know, Soros bailed out uh, Prosper when it was running into trouble with defaults and, and with uh, just keep, you know, 
having consumers keep up with payments. Um, and they basically said, we, we're, we're basically exiting this product. We, you know, we want, we have a commitment now under our new fund managers to um, basically consumer sustainable products. We're not going to do any uh, invest in products that don't help consumers uh, improve their conditions. And the implication was these products are bad for consumers and we're, we're, we're exiting from that. So, um, but you know, these wow. many other, many private equity investors are still in it. Um, we'll see if they remain, right? One question is really, what do you think, what does this industry look like after this kind of current economic crisis? Um, do, does the capital for loans keep coming in? Does it remain profitable? Or are we going to see, see a wave of defaults that kind of makes investors a little more shy? Because, you know, frankly, consumers' FICO scores are no longer a good reflection necessarily of their current economic standing. You know, depending on what part of the country you're in, you just don't know if someone will have a job, um, has, you know, their ability to pay in the past. What does it mean now? Because, again, unlike with home lending, all they are lending against is just basically someone's reputation and, and history. Yeah, I, I think there was really something also to be said about the the, the lack of physical presence that you were mentioning before. Be, you know that that kind of stuck out to me as a sort of uh, as like the the whitewashing of sort of like kind of you know what this could potentially be because like everybody everybody and again this sort of relates to sort of the the tech related side of it is like everybody looks at like you know sort of like um you know payday loan stuff for lack of a better word as like this this, this sort of like dirty kind of like this is gross you know like it's it's very inherently predatory situation and it's it's physically represent, represented in society by you know a cd uh uh, corner play, place on the corner with like a line of destitute people yeah. outside basically going in you know uh you know doing that and meanwhile this this feels much more like glossed over and uh made to seem like hey this, this isn't that bad this isn't that bad and and especially when you mentioned the gambling thing that was that was so intense to me because like imagine if Imagine if instead of like under the loan list, it, it, instead of instead of like home refinancing, you know, uh, improvements, uh, car payment, one of the one of the options just said uh, gambling, <laughs> you know, and it, it would just be like, oh, no, this is no, we can't. This is bad. This this is this could be really bad. <laughs> you know, it's called the, the article is called the fintech debt trap. Can you talk a little bit more how its presence as a tech company uh, makes it different than other consumer lending uh, outlets. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think part of it is what we already discussed is just the lack of accountability in that there's a, you know, the consumer's contract is with the platform. And when it suits them, the lenders, you know, the, the platforms will say, oh, actually, it's not us, it's Cross River Bank or it's Web Bank or whoever our partner is. But when it comes time for any kind of consumer accountability, it's just, oh, we're just a platform we're not the bank um so, so all, I think all that, of us are like right ferociously there, nodding our heads right now <laughs> so, we're all just like yes got it yeah so, yeah and yeah. and this is this is kind of the um you know and, the, and this is what's so really troubling about these efforts now to um allow you know the, the, these federal regulatory changes that are that are being proposed and and will likely happen is that um 
you, you know, it, it's it's that there really isn't any accountability. The bank can kind of swoop in and does what it uh, does, but under the the aegis of this this lending platform. Um, you know, I do think that it's it's you know there are going to be companies that are that are going to be a little have a little more rigor around like what is it that you are borrowing for because one one aspect of this industry that's interesting that I didn't get into in the article but you know could could be helpful to consumers could be a disaster is you know you have certain companies one of them is Upstart uh, another one is SoFi where they're really targeting. Yeah, recent college grads and students, you know, folks who have student debt, but who also have potentially have career prospects. Now, again, the economic upheaval now, I mean, who knows whether that underwriting actually works. But one really interesting thing about Upstart is that it went to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and actually got a waiver on the usual rules where you're supposed to, if you're doing some kind of algorithm to evaluate um, uh, consumer, you know, uh, consumers' ability to pay back loans. You're supposed to have some transparency around how that works because you ha you're subject to discrimination laws and, you know, all of this. Right. Uh, I should say anti-discrimination laws, right? To make sure you're doing it fairly in 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 line with with a variety of regulations. And basically, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau issued what it called a no action letter at the request of Upstart, and that letter said. You guys can go experiment with this algorithm. Um, we will um, <laughs> say that we're not going to go after you. Right. I. I um, yeah. I, I. Yeah. In my old job, I was watching a, a House subcommittee hearing on AI bias. You know, and there was a few folks that were talking about you know exactly what you're speaking of, uh, which is that algorithms, yep. when input, when they have inputs that are uh, limited. Uh, or created by folks who might be discriminatory themselves, they can perpetuate discrimination yep. on a much larger scale because that's how they operate on a on a larger scale. And also that um, the kind of type A thinking, uh, logic thinking of an algorithm makes direct uh, conclusions uh, that can be discriminatory. They say, you went to this school, you live in this neighborhood, ergo you are a bad lender. Uh, and that is just that, that that is on its face discriminatory, but that's not really something that you can that most folks have uh, put controls in for. Uh, it, it, at least that's what the the subcommittee you know they were talking about. And one thing that was also very interesting for me was what's called the kind of like a black box of algorithmic thinking, which is sometimes the algorithm makes decisions in such a way that we don't know why they made a decision that they did and programmers themselves are outmatched in sophistication by the algorithm itself so if there's a liability issue where you are a prosecutor or something like that and you're trying to decide and decipher why or whether an algorithm was biased sometimes it's actually impossible which um i found to just uh, you know, as as someone who looks at this sort of stuff from a legal perspective, very frightening, very frightening. Yeah, it, it it's it's so it's like, you know, be again. I think people put so much emphasis on technology as just being this immutable. Like, no, it's right. You know, it it got it right. It will get it right. And and I think we just forget so frequently 
how much that it's subject to these weird, chaotic kind of, or somewhat sometimes chaotic, like, tendencies to just sort of, like, judge experimentally on it. Like, I, I, I don't know. It's like, you know, elements of it might be like, look, don't give a, a loan to a guy who looks like he stood in a bread line in, like, 1937. And it'll be like, okay, we won't loan to that person because they can't make any money. But then it gets into, like, more, like, kind of, like, weird, un untenable sort of, like, oh, this person will be good or this person won't be bad. It, it really, it sounds a lot like how, like, back in, like, 2013 or 2014, like, Facebook just randomly decided to just uh, deluge a, a portion of their users with sad shit. Like, that, there was, did you, you remember when that happened? Like, in, the, in like, yeah, so. remember, no, yeah, remember in 2013, like, if Facebook essentially said, like, we are going to see what happens when we only show a portion of our users like um, stuff that is like uh, downtrodden and bad and like not uplifting, essentially. And they just did this sort of wholesale experiment uh, to see what happened uh, with their users. And sure enough, the people who were exposed to sad shit were like, like showed like a higher higher levels of anxiety and et cetera and all the, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's it's they just they just did that they just did that wholesale because they're like, oh, we're a tech company, we break things first and then apologize later, which is just and and, and that's that is uh, that's another thing that really reeks of it. The the, the, the whole operation it, it really feels like this melding of two worlds because when you talk about tech and stuff, it, you get kind of pulled into that sort of like uh, San Jose kind of like Bay Area kind of mindset thing. You know, where people talk, you know, how, again, how they're disruption. innovating. Disrupt. Yeah, exactly. Disruption and what have you. And, uh, but yeah, the, the finance aspect of it, you know, it's taking that sort of ruthless finance, like, chip, and then uh, infusing it with just sort of this uh, very, very kind of harsh, uh, uncaring, like, experimental, uh, like, um uh, yeah, uh, uh, Silicon Valley kind of edge to it, and it just like, ugh. so yeah, it's, so it's, it's yeah. So Alyssa, uh, is there anything else that makes like tech companies will oftentimes you know harvest data, uh, or you know have some sort of uh, fixed uh, mechanisms like that to make extra cash on top? Are they harvesting? Are, are these uh, consumer lenders harvesting data and selling it? You know that is a fantastic question, and I have no idea. Right. And I don't think, you know, part of the issue of not having any kind of clear regulatory structure for this is that I don't know if there's a regulator that would have any idea. Like in the example that I gave of Upstart Network, they voluntarily went to um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau just to sort of uh, to, to kind of put a, a, a you know, agency seal of approval on what they were doing and maybe to show off and get publicity about, hey, aren't we, we great that we're uh, innovating in this way? But there really isn't any accountability around any of these practices, just in the way there's very little accountability around algorithms or um, kind of data harvesting or, or privacy or anything else within uh, online platforms in general. Because again, they're saying we're not the bank, we're just the platform. Um, and uh, yeah, I know one thing I'd wondered is just in the course of doing the reporting, whether I was being profiled as a potential borrower, you know, because you get the usual, you know, the ads coming to you once you right. start Googling right. around about online <laughs> loans and 
Yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's you hear again it's into the gamblers and in, in other people at risk of really getting in over their heads. Um, I have no doubt that they are being targeted through those platforms and steered over to online lenders. Um, but again, I don't, you know, be not a gambler myself. Um, I, I am not in that, that underworld, but um, you know, it's, there's different ways that those lenders find people in need. Um, and that's, that's for someone else to report or I could down the road. I, I, I'm not, familiar with how it works, only that people have strong suspicions that they are profiled and targeted for these products. Alyssa, you've given me a really great idea. All right, bear, here, uh, hear me out very quickly. It's, uh, it's like Uber, okay? I was reading about Civil, which is this company where you can get freelance people to come help you, uh, if you're a landlord, evict uh, people who haven't oh, yes. paid their rent. So uh, we're going to do something like that. It's a fin I need fintech investors for my company, but it's a simple app where if you haven't paid your debts to these companies, it's called Bookie. And uh, we just hire out of work uh, oh, uh, kneecappers to show up at your house. Yeah. It's yeah. Are you, it's are you into Pink this? It's called Pinkerton. It's great. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. there's, there's plenty of firms that are, you know, they have their lawyers in court every day. You know, with their metaphorical baseball bats. Yeah, I, I want to start what it's called uh, Task uh, Task Doberman. It's uh, Task Rabbit, but it's just Dobermans who will come and, <laughs> and, and attack. Uh, I I don't understand what like the, these companies. They I don't understand what, like the the purpose of really going after, especially these people who are in these desperate situations, because ultimately it's it's such a tenuous. Um, random chaotic way to even just make profit. Be, I mean, like if you if you watch like any kind of television, any kind of situation where they're like, oh, we're we're, we're we've come to like you know take your stuff. It's just sort of like, what do you what are you gonna do? It's like this person has a, a ninety five Toyota Tercel that's worth one hundred dollars, and you're gonna sell it at a a discount of ninety ninety percent. Right. So now it's worth. 10 bucks it's it's like it's it's all it's all just very much fueled on human misery yeah but when i interviewed paul gu who's uh, the co-founder of um upstart network you know he said they never pursue any of their borrowers in court like they just take the losses and in fact their losses are you know they they try they they they, they, they say their fancy algorithm helps weed out risky you know, borrowers and then the ones who fail anyway they just kind of, they, he says they write it off. And one interesting thing about Gu um, is that he was one of those um, young people that, you know, Peter Thiel, the investor and, you know, Facebook guy and, cool. and conservative activist. Uh, yeah, he, cool. if you recall, he took a bunch of young people and said, you know, don't go to college, come and work with me and I'll give you a bunch of money and you will um, become brilliant entrepreneurs like I am. And that was what Paul Gu did was he created Upstart Network. So he created a fintech company as one of Peter Thiel's disciples. Which wow. About, and no. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, yeah. Noted, noted New Zealand resident Peter Thiel, who ha owns a home in that country, purely on the speculative chance that there will be climate apocalypse and that he can escape to somewhere that is livable. Uh, so, Alyssa... Let's uh let's try and think about something like what what sort of um prescriptions or uh ways that we can think about 
addressing this in a productive way uh, could could be had for for this sort of for this sort of new emerging industry. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, it's the prescriptions you know, they ought to be straightforward, which is that if states have strong uh, powers to regulate financial institutions at the state level, and that's an important part of federalism. Um, of course, it leads to, in some states, uh, predatory lending and high interest lending because that's, you know, the regulators are basically captive to the industries and that's unfortunate. But in you know, a fairly large number of states that, that still have a spine, um, they have great powers to make sure interest rates and fees are not excessive, to make sure that uh, online lending is subject to the same kind of scrutiny and regulation that brick and mortar lenders are subject to. I mean, all this exists um, and is ready to be deployed. Right. It's just that online lending has kind mm -hmm. of exploited this, this piggybacking on the state lenders, this exportation power, and then you know getting the federal regulators to kind of tear down the walls that exist and basically uh, eradicate states' regulatory power. So I think just getting the federal government to stop you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating because, of course, conservatives are all about states' rights and states' powers until right. it's Yeah, they are. States <laughs> suddenly decide that they want to regulate private capital. And then it's like, oh, no, we, we can't have that. So, you know, at a certain point, the states need to have the authority to act. And we need political accountability that comes from the grassroots in every state. So that, you know, and we've seen improvements. Like, I think Colorado, Ohio, other states have succeeded in lowering their interest rates rate caps um, and kind of putting predatory lending in its place and, 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 and uh, uh, payday lending in its place. Like we've seen significant strides even as Trump's been in the White House at the state level because states realize they need to step up. So just leave the states alone. Let them do what they're doing. I think that's the main takeaway. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I, yeah. Do you think Biden yeah, I, will do something? That's a good question, right? Because it was Obama um, who got the ball rolling on the idea of a fintech charter, right? So cool. I don't know. Very cool. I mean, it's, you know, but Bob would hope, and of course you can't control this once you've kind of created this legal entity, I would certainly hope that a Biden fintech charter would have all kinds of anti-predatory lending uh, protections in there. But again, if you're just doing something as a regulatory agency and or a charter uh, issuer, not as a, not as Congress, like, you know, it, it, it can change depending on who's putting out the regulations. Once, once it's in the administrative apparatus of government, there's not any accountability, right? Because you just, you know, the controller of the currency, the FDIC, you're going to do what they're going to do. They'll take public comment and they'll say, okay, we're, we're, we, we have this, we're, we're, we're not accountable. Um, so I, I do think that it's, it's, um, you know, it, it, and as I say in the piece, I think fintech has really been a bipartisan affair. Like, you know, it was, um, you know, it, it was not only Obama's uh, control of the currency who really pushed uh, the online lending charter, but like I interviewed Raj Date, who's a big investor in, in Prosper and also is one of the founders of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So there is a constituency of kind of um, Democratic Party affiliated capitalists who really, you know, uh, want to see a kind of virtuous version of online lending thrive. And like, while I respect that, the, the impulse to want to um, expand uh, consumer products and 
kind of create new product lines for their industries. It's just, this is how we ended up with the foreclosure crisis was your democratic right. administrations, yeah. basically, you know, the ones who, who needed to be um, really looking out for consumers, they were the ones who um, participated in deregulation, who, who should have been the ones uh, um, sort of realizing what the implications were. And so I see a very similar pattern here, potentially. Um, you know, and again, my, my, my book on um, the bubble kind of gets into that history. So I'm a little wary of what might happen, but it's obviously much worse under, under Trump. Trump is just like, do whatever you want in any state. Goodbye. That's, that's very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of, of a, pay, a payday loans. Capitalism is kind of his ethos. Correct. Correct. Um, all right. Well, uh, Alyssa, thank you so much for yeah. uh, coming on the show. We really appreciate your time and uh, best of luck. Uh, with everything and hope to have you on again soon. Thank you very much. Yeah. This has been great. This is fascinating. Bye. Thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate Bye -bye. it. Bye-bye. Bye, Alyssa. Bye.